If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1902, Australia became the first country to grant some women full political equality. And that's the subject of today's conversation with historian Claire Wright. Claire's new book, You Daughters of Freedom chronicles the pioneering fight for women's suffrage in Australia and also looks at how, once the vote was won, some women turned to Britain to help further the cause of those they called, quote, their less fortunate British sisters. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Claire in London to find out more. Your book looks at the Australian women who were both involved very much in this British fight and, in fact, their own fight for women's suffrage, um, which gave... uh, I've got to get this right, gave some women full political equality in 1902. So many, many years before, some British women were given that vote. So could we perhaps um, just start by discussing what brought you to this this aspect of the suffrage fight? Well, I'm an historian by trade. I'm an associate professor of history at La Trobe University, and my interest is in democracy. So this book actually forms the second instalment of my democracy trilogy. And what I have been doing is writing women back into the political history of Australia. And I'm doing that through objects. So it's about the material heritage of Australian democracy. The first book is called The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. The Eureka Stockade was a landmark historical event in Australia. It happened in 1854. It was a battle between the miners and military in the Australian gold rush. So British military and miners from all over the world who had come to Australia to make a new life. And I won't go into the details of that, although you'll be able to soon see it on your television screens because the book is being made into a 10-part television drama series. But that forms the first book that event is often called the birthplace of Australian democracy. Women have always been written out of that account and I wrote them back into it. 
But women didn't get what men got out of that event, which was the right to vote. That made Australian men without property more fully enfranchised than British men at that time. The next big nation-building event in Australian history is Federation, when the colonies of Australia came together to make a new nation. And at this point in time, women said, we want to be involved, we'll help this nation become federated, but we want our political rights out of that process. And there is a banner that tells that story. So in the in the Eureka story, there's a flag that tells that story and that flag you can still go and see. In this suffrage story, there is a banner and it forms the centerpiece of this book. And the story that is told by this banner is actually what happens next after Australia is federated and Australia at the time of federation, which is 1901. In 1902, Australia becomes the first country in the world where women won full political equality. That is the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament. So New Zealand women had run the right to vote in 1893. Australian women then got the dual right. Some women, and that's because Indigenous women, Australian Aboriginal women, were left out of that. And in fact, the same piece of legislation that enfranchised Australian women disenfranchised all Indigenous people, men and women. The banner, which is the material object that the story hinges around, is actually part of the British story. It's about what Australian women did next. After they won those rights, in those world-leading rights in Australia, they came to the aid of what they called their less fortunate British sisters. So, in fact, this whole book was supposed to be about that act of Australian women going and fighting in and in many respects leading the British suffragette movement. As it turns out, that's what two-thirds of the book is about, but I realised that Australians weren't familiar enough with their own history that I couldn't tell that kind of backstory of how Australia got to be in that world-leading vote. So the first third of the book is about that. So I came to it out of my interest in democracy, which is really about people having a voice. When people say, we need to be counted, And that's what suffrage effectively is. Enfranchisement is about saying, you need to count us in this nation. Australia, in some people might say bizarrely, because we don't think of Australia now as a country that is necessarily uh, leads the world in anything except sport. Australia was the first country in which women fully counted. So why do you think that this pioneering aspect of Australia's history has been so forgotten? So you're right, this was a a global movement. Suffrage is a global movement. We sort of tend to forget that part of it as well. It was really considered to be the great moral question of of the era, the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, In a way, maybe you might consider to be climate change is the great moral issue of of today, the, the great global issue facing us. So... Australian women, like women around the world, were pushing for these votes. But there was, they came to this fight 
at a time when there were already these tensions locally, not about gender politics particularly, but about states' rights versus federal rights. And at this point, women said, we will help this nation federate in all the ways that women politically campaign, motivate, mobilise, communicate, that they wanted to be part of that, but they wanted to have their rights included in that. So Australian women really were nation builders. This story, however, is not known in Australia because really soon after that extraordinary um, uh, progressive act of federation was World War I. And on the heels of this incredibly optimistic time when Australia was bold and brave and, and, and charting a new path in the world with progressive politics, World War I comes along and everything comes crashing down in despair and, and, and tragedy and, and, and death. And so the morality that had been around women's suffrage on a global scale becomes displaced by militarism. And on a local scale, in terms of Australian history, what happens is that the real birth of the nation, which was federation, becomes overtaken by a myth that is in Australia known as the Anzac myth. The Anzacs were the soldiers, the Australian and New Zealand um, Army Corps. And the Anzac myth goes something like this. Australians were incredible soldiers. They were young, they were virile, they went out into the world. They had this storming of the beaches of Gallipoli in 1915 and they proved their valour as soldiers, both at Gallipoli and then on the Western Front. And that this narrative that Australia proved itself on the world stage in World War I took a grip on history writing right from very early on. And this becomes known as the birth of the nation. The Gallipoli was the birth of the Australian nation. And that is a story that then uh, goes down in kind of folklore, but it's also taught in schools. And in the last 20 years in Australia, an enormous amount of government funding has gone into reinforcing that story. And it is a story that is about Australia following another country into war. That was Britain, um, because Australia was part of the British Empire. So once Britain declared itself at war, Australian followed. Uh, our Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher, famously said that Australia would be by Britain's side to the last man and the last shilling. And this sort of idea of Australians following Britain into war is a particularly militarised version of our history. And any time you have military history as a dominant narrative, it's also a masculine history. Because although there have been a slew of books that have come out recently about women in World War One, Anzac nurses, for example, you know, there's been quite a lot of research done. It is essentially a masculine story. And so this whole 
idea of Australia's preeminence in the world that was built around the agency of Australian women, but also the fact that Australia as a nation had led the world in women's suffrage, that just becomes erased by this alternative and much more dominant myth of Australia's blood sacrifice that happened at Gallipoli. So taking it back to the women's stories then, um, what was the situation for many women? I realise we're talking predominantly about white women here as you you address in your book. Um, the, the realities for them, what were they trying to change in terms of their um, rights to sexual liberation, their social rights? What, what was that situation? Then? Well, this is a really important question because I think people sometimes think, oh, the right to vote was just, um, you know, it was a political movement uh, that was just about citizenship. And particularly now, we can tend to think, oh, well, that's not very important because, you know, the whole idea of democracy is kind of up for grabs. Uh, You know, you can't take two steps without thinking about Britain's current situation with Brexit or Trump's America and talking about the diminution of democracy and people's faith in it. But the, the Votes for Women movement wasn't just about kind of pure principles of democracy. Women wanted the vote both for fairness because they were locked out, but they also wanted it because women's lives, to use a very, you know, historically technical term, were shit. They had no rights. Even wealthy women whose lives were much less shit than impoverished women working class women, factory workers and, and you know, women who weren't even lucky enough to have any jobs, even women who were at the top of the food chain socially, they didn't have right to custody over their own children, they couldn't get a bank loan, they didn't have access to education or only a very few of them did. There were all sorts of levels of legal discrimination as well as economic and social discrimination that women fought against every day. And there were also social mores of the era. So if a woman got pregnant out of wedlock, she was in the terms of the day a fallen woman. She couldn't get employed. Her family often rejected her. That child was a bastard and that affected the rest of that child's life. Um, Generally the fellow involved in that conception was nowhere to be seen and a woman was left to raise the children alone. There was no such thing as a single mother's pension. There was no such thing as maintenance or or any um, kind of way of chasing the man to take any responsibility for that child. So women's lives were so perilous Um, And we've got to remember as well, they had very large families at this stage as well, no access to to safe or regular contraception. Uh, So, you know, anywhere, even by the end of the 19th 19th century where family numbers were dropping, but women were still having up to eight, ten children. And women wanted the right to be able to abstain from sexual relations with their husband, which was in fact illegal, They wanted the age of consent to be raised for the protection of their daughters. Most places the age of consent was about 12 or 13. And they couldn't affect any 
of these changes. They couldn't afford any of these protections or, or levels of self-determination because they couldn't change the laws that governed them because they didn't have the vote. So it actually really meant something to have these political rights. And interestingly, one of the ways in which Australia held itself up as a beacon of change and, as a, and of progress in this era was that because they were the first place in which women could vote and also stand for parliament and therefore were the kind of beacons of hope, people looked to Australia to see what the vote had meant, to see what the results of that particular social experiment of women's suffrage had been. And Australia was able to prove within that first decade that, in fact, infant mortality rates had decreased enormously, that that maternal mortality had decreased, that things that, that women had been campaigning for for decades, like raising the age of consent in Australia, you know, almost overnight, that went from 13 to 16, that there were now laws and regulations in factories, that wages had risen, that they had brought in things like um, arbitration um, in, in industrial sense. So workers had more protections and more rights. And Australian women were able to point to these things as being actual concrete consequences of women's suffrage, and they use that as a way of trying to influence other governments to do what Australia had done. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit uh, more about the figures uh, who feature in your book then? Because there are many remarkable women and men who are obviously involved in these the fight for these rights. Um, maybe we could talk, is it Vida or Vida? Vida, she calls herself. Vida Goldstein. Um, maybe we could just start with her. So there are five characters who I follow through in this book, and it's a work of narrative nonfiction. So although it's based in scholarship and I am an academic, it's written uh, with storytelling at the heart of it and with character at the heart of it and character development. And there were many women that I, I found in my archival research that I, that I could have focused on, but I chose these five because they had all had some kind of influence or backstory in Australia and then had come and worked for the British suffrage suffragette movement. And Vida Goldstein was the most prominent of those five. And, and in fact, the only woman who I knew anything about before I started researching this book. Of the five, she's the only one I knew. I'd written about her in the past. Um, I made a documentary for ABC television in Australia uh, and Vida had featured as one of those women because she later comes back uh, in, during the war as an as a anti-war campaigner. But Vida is an extraordinary woman. Um, she was raised Presbyterian. She was uh, from um, a middle-class background, very educated, uh, beautiful, um, very beautifully spoken. All the newspaper reports always talk about the quality of her voice, how womanly she was. And she had all sorts of marriage offers and she could have lived the life of um, one of, of those privileged women of the time, but she avoided all of that, she rejected all of that because she wanted to work for the betterment of all women and children and she felt that she couldn't do that if she was a wife and a mother herself. And so Vida became the acknowledged leader of the Australian suffrage movement. Um, she was Victorian and she fought for Victorian women's rights um, 
so Australian women won the right to vote in 1902, but all the states didn't come along until 1908 when Victorian women the right, won the right to vote. But she also play, had a, was a player on the international stage. So in 1902, the first international women's suffrage conference was held in Washington, D.C. And Vida went as the representative of Australia and New Zealand, so Australasia it was called. And Vida was a, a huge hit because she was the only one who had what all the other women wanted. And in fact, she was such a standout that the president, Theodore Roosevelt, invited her to come to see him in the Oval Office. And as far as I can tell, she's the first Australian ever to visit an American president in the Oval Office. And he wanted her to come and meet him because he wanted to, in his own words, see what one of these enfranchised women looked like. Because all of the kind of rhetoric that was coming from the anti-suffrage campaign was that all these kind of prophecies of doom that all revolved um, around a kind of the breakdown of the moral and social fabric of society. Women wouldn't want to marry anymore. They wouldn't want to have children. It would be the end of the family. They would leave babies at the hearth to go and vote. Um, they would become manly. They would be unsexed and or they would become oversexed depending um, on, you know, how the anti-suffrage forces were moving on that day. And there were, you know, all of these caricatures, these actual pictures of them that were drawn in newspapers with women suffragists were portrayed as um, having hair kind of all akimbo, you know, um, that they didn't wear hats and they they had, they looked like crones, you know, like witches. Um, either that or if they were young, that they were kind of sirens, you know, who, who were kind of sexually ostentatious. And, um, and so Roosevelt wanted to see whether all of that was true. And what he found was this very beautifully put together, very feminine, but very outspoken, very strong woman. And he said that he, he, he said he was very taken by Australia and, and that he had his eye on Australia and what was going on down there. Uh, so, so Vida kind of impressed everybody. She did this lecture tour of America. She came back to Australia. She continued to work for women's suffrage in her own state of Victoria. And then after that was won in 1908, she was then in the position to take up Emmeline Pankhurst's offer to come and mobilise and inspire and, and help to strategize for the British suffragette movement and particularly her organisation, the Women's Social and Political Union. And in 1911, Vida does just that. So she sails to London. She has an extraordinary reception. I mean, one of the things that was incredible for me to, to find doing this research is that even though I didn't, even as, as a feminist historian, I didn't know these women now, in their own era, everybody knew them. They were household names and Vida certainly was. She had 10,000 people meet her here in London. She filled Albert Hall for her talks. She felt she could speak without any amplification and everybody noted that she could reach the back corners of the room and she talked about the Australian experience and she talked about how Australian women had won their rights and she talked about the experience of Australian men and how important they had been, their support had been in Australian women winning those rights. And she 
went to thousands of meetings and she spoke all over the UK and she was absolutely fated as a celebrity of her own day, kind of like, you know, the Kylie Minogue mm-hmm. of her day. And, uh, and, and so she was here throughout 1911 and it was, it was a letter that was written to her that gave me the title of the book. You Daughters of Freedom. It was a letter written to her by the other Emmeline, Emmeline Pethick Lawrence, and she wrote a letter to Vida on on her departure after giving her some beautiful jewellery, and she said, You Daughters of Freedom, you go back to the new world and you enjoy those rights. I'm paraphrasing, but you enjoy those rights that we British women are still struggling to get. So very much a sense that Australian women were the other, they were the you, and that they had what British women didn't have, which was a complete reversal of the usual mother, country, daughter, country relationship. It completely kind of flipped the colonial logic and, and Vida was a kind of symbol of that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It was something that galled all women, but particularly Australian women when they came and visited London, that if you wanted to go to Parliament and watch democracy in process, you had to sit in the ladies' gallery. And Fido was this, you know, phenomenal figurehead for for Australian women had already gained. Um, there were also Australian women taking part in what might be regarded as the more militant aspects of, of the struggle. So um, there's Muriel, uh, Muriel Matters. Her activities, I'd love to talk about them. Muriel Matters was just this extraordinary um, jewel in the crown of the British militant movement. Uh, she was known in her own era as that daring Australian girl. And, and again, she was, she was known internationally for her exploits. So Muriel is the youngest of the five women that I follow. She was born in South Australia, part of a large family, and she aspired to being an actress. Um, because of her age, she was less involved. She actually hadn't been at all involved in the, in the Australian suffrage movement. Um, and it was actually as an actress that she wanted to make her mark in the world. And in order to do that, like, like most people um, of the times, and some would say this is still going on today, you had to go to England to make your name. And so in 1905, she does that. She arrives in England And she has something of a, I guess we might call it now a bit of a me too moment. So she starts working in the British theatre and is astounded to discover just how exploited and vulnerable English actresses are. So Muriel decides that what she's going to do is to try to help these other actresses and she kind of unionises them in a way. And uh, later that year she is at a suffrage rally one of emmeline pankhurst's and she almost has this kind of um conversion moment where she realizes that what she has been put on this earth to do is not to act on the theatrical stage but to be a political actor on the political stage and 
this is what she sets her heart on now and she realises that she needs to change British politics and that's the only way that that having the vote is the only way that it's going to trickle down into all of the areas in which women are disadvantaged and discriminated against, oppressed and abused. And so originally she, she starts to go to WSPU meetings, but she actually moves over to the Women's Freedom League, which was also a militant movement, but it was not under the kind of... Um, personality-driven Pankhurst mafia model that the WSPU was. It suited Muriel's more Australian democratic temperament that the way that it was set up um, she felt was more inclusive and she liked that. And she soon became the WFL's most powerful weapon. She does this in 1908. So prior to 1908, she'd done some speaking around the country. She used to go vanning, she'd call it. There was a horse that they uh, cheekily named Asquith, um, who was the British Prime Minister, who was who was the one who had dug his heels in and was refusing to give women the vote, even though he was from the Liberal Party. And that's the everybody thought that the Liberal Party was going to deliver the freedoms that women had been uh, proclaiming for decades in Britain. Uh, so they call the horse Asquith. She goes through the country holding meetings, um, standing on chairs, making speeches, basically just trying to recruit members for the suffrage cause. In 1908, she does something more spectacular than that. It was something that galled all women, but particularly Australian women when they came and visited London, that If you wanted to go to Parliament and watch democracy in process, you had to sit in the ladies' gallery, which was up a rickety steps, very high up in the houses of Westminster, and you had to sit behind a metal grill. And ostensibly the reason for that grill was it was so the MPs wouldn't be distracted by women in the house. But what it made the women feel like was that they were segregated, that they were like, you know, in a in a they were animals in a cage or 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 women in a harem. And that it was as Vida Goldstein said when she came and and sat behind that grill, it was humiliating. And Muriel used that as her Trojan horse. So she got a ticket to see Parliament one day. She goes up there wearing all of her kind of capes and long dresses of the Edwardian era, but she has a chain wrapped around her waist and she waits about three hours in the ladies' gallery before she has the opportunity to run to the front of the gallery. She uses the chain that's bolted around her waist. She takes the other end of it. She changes it around the grill. She puts another lock around it, and then when she knows she's firmly ensconced on that grill, she shouts out, votes for women, and another... um, member of the WFL is Helen Fox is also there and she rolls out a banner that says votes for women. She sticks it through a hole in the grill and rolls it out. And then uh, a parliamentarian, one of the men MPs um, who is a supporter of the cause, down on the floor, he he throws out all of these votes for women leaflets. And Muriel is credited as being the first woman to speak in the British House of Commons 
because she makes this suffrage speech uh, and where she proclaims the rights of women and she and she disavows the political chicanery that's going on to deny them their rights. And so quickly the, the house guards come up, the police are called, and they try to remove her. But she says she hasn't got the key. It's actually on a string around her neck. She doesn't tell them that. And they treat her very roughly. She says later that they pull her head back and, and they treat her very violently. Um, and eventually they realise the only way that they can shut her up because she's still shrieking speeches out through all of this is that they get the bolt cutters and they cut the whole of the grill this panel of the grill out and they cart Muriel away still attached to the metal grill and do you think that makes the morning papers of course it does so pictures of Muriel huge front page pictures are splashed all across the British press and suddenly votes for women is front page news and Muriel actually gets arrested that night and sent to prison. Funnily enough, not for her grill exploits, but for making a bit of a fracas outside Parliament later on after you know, she, she keeps speechifying and, and, and they arrest her for public nuisance and um, she goes to jail. And, but it doesn't put her off and a few months later in 1909 she harnesses uh, another extraordinary, so if chaining herself to the grill was a symbol of women's oppression and slavery, the whole, the whole um, metaphor of being chained, in, in her next exploit harnesses the power of modernity and the new symbol of mobility and modernity, which is flight. And she hires an airship, a dirigible, they call it at the time, like a big balloon with a, a basket hanging off it. And the kindly owner of the airship allows her to paint votes for women in big letters across the balloon. It's sort of a cigar-shaped balloon. And she goes up into the air and the plan is is that she's going to sail across London and down following the procession of King George as he goes to Westminster to open Parliament for the new year. And things go a bit awry because it's a windy day and I'll let your readers uh, find the end of the story, but she does manage to rain down upon London 50 pounds of leaflets that have suffrage paraphernalia and, and propaganda all over them. So she was an extraordinary risk taker. She was daring, like, like her reputation had her. She was outspoken. She was a tiny little blonde woman um, and she packed an absolutely mighty punch so she was a kind of the secret pocket rocket weapon of the WFL and she ended up living her whole life in England and she stood for the seat of Hastings where she ended up uh, living and um, she died in the 1960s and she's just somebody who was you know a uh, um, a larger-than-life character in her day and, uh, and provided this extraordinary inspiration to the British suffragette movement um, with that particular form of Australian daring-do that she was seen to bring to the movement. 
Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit more about the banner that you've already mentioned, what what was on it and, and when it was found as well. So this banner is the most beautiful piece of art. I just want to say that from the from the outset. It's not uh, just a kind of some kind of bald political placard, you know, like we get today. You go and you see a street march, and there's, um, you know, multiple sloganed banners that have just been churned out of some printer. The suffragette movement harnessed the artistic and domestic skills of women to make these incredible banners. Most of them were embroidered. But this banner, which was painted by an Australian artist whose name was Dora Meeson Coates, Dora was living in Chelsea as part of the expat artist community, Australian artist community um, of the time. She was a very accomplished artist. And she became a member of the WFL, the Women's Freedom League, also. And for the first big procession of the suffrage movement in 1908, she decided to make a banner that called on what she felt she had to offer, which was not only her beautiful artistic skills as a painter, but a message that would be read and understood by everybody who was lining the streets of London on that day. Everybody would read it, understand the implications of it. It was a remarkable political message. So on the banner was painted two figures. One was of Mother Britannia, an older woman standing upright, holding her trident, as Britannia does, staring off diffidently into the distance with her white robes around her. Next to her is daughter Minerva, kneeling at her feet, reaching up to her with a hand and imploring her. And across the top is the lettering that reads, Commonwealth of Australia, trust the women mother as I have done. This was an extraordinary act of allegorical effrontery. Daughter Minerva represents Australia. Mother Britannia represents England. This is Australia saying to Britain, give your women votes just as we have. It was the daughter country telling the mother country how to suck eggs. There were many who would have been uncomfortable with the message in Australia because they would have been worried about the implications, foreign relations. But that particular inversion of the mother-daughter dyad spoke volumes. It was about Australia proudly proclaiming that it had the advantage, that mother didn't know best. And Dora used that in the 1908 rally and then she used it again in the 1911 rally which was known as the Great Suffragette Procession, the Women's Coronation Procession of 1911, June 1911, to celebrate the coronation of King George. The rest of the world was there. People had come from every part of the globe, dignitaries, politicians, 
particularly from the British Empire, had come. The Prime Minister of Australia, Andrew Fisher, was there. His wife, Margaret Fisher, was there. All sorts of Australians who were living in London at the time also came out to this parade. And Vida Goldstein, who was there also in 1911, managed to corral a huge contingent of Australian women who were living in London. And in this massive procession, which involved tens of thousands of British suffragettes and hundreds of thousands of Londoners along the sides of the streets, Australia and New Zealand marched at the front of the procession because of their preeminence in global politics. And the Australian contingent marched behind Dora's banner. And it was considered by the British press to be one of the most impressive banners there. There were 2,000 banners. After that extraordinary event, the banner disappeared. It didn't turn up for another 75 years. It turned up on the folded up on top of a storage unit at the back of the Fawcett Library, which is now the Women's Library at LSE. And the significance of the banner was realised because of its age, not necessarily because of the message, which had really been lost by then. The, the message had been lost to the, the story of Australian preeminence had been lost, but the artistic and historical value of the banner was realised. And there was an Australian feminist historian living in London at the time, Dale Spender, and she came and she saw it and she realised how important it was and she essentially started a process of negotiation for the Australian government to buy it back, which is precisely what they did in 1988, um, which was the bicentennial year. And so uh, Bob Hawke, who was the Prime Minister at the time, um, bought it back and uh, gave it over to the women of Australia. Of course, it should have gone to the people of Australia, but he, he, he gave it as a gift to the women of Australia. And that banner was then properly conserved and it now hangs in Parliament House, which you would think is a good news story, but only partially so. Because, yes, the banner was uh, discovered, it was, it was pulled out of obscurity, it was conserved, so we now can all see it. But the where, where it's positioned at Parliament House is suggestive that it's not particularly important. And most people, I have discovered, including Australia's elected representatives who are in Parliament House every day, don't know it's there and don't understand its significance. And it's really a shining example, a symbol of just how much we have lost our sense of this history, the importance of this story. And since the publication of my book, um, I, I know that many more people are going to Parliament House, seeking it out, trying to see it, because I've been quite vocal about my feelings that this should be considered to be one of our founding documents um, in the way that America values, you know, its constitution and the Declaration of Rights and, and, and um, you know, maybe Britain has the crown jewels, things that are considered to be sort of, you know, emblematic of the nation and the, what, the principles on, by which it was founded. This banner absolutely tells that story and we all should know of its presence um, and its significance. And when I first came across it, I had no idea of those things. It was 
again, one of the things that really spurred me to write this book was a sense of kind of um, not just outrage but shame, my own shame that I didn't understand what this banner meant. And if that would go some way to redressing um, these pioneers' positions in Australian history, um, what what would you like to see more of in terms of their recognising their roles in, in the British struggle? So... Absolutely. It's really important that Australians start to understand their history and that they also understood that that once they were a proud progressive nation, because we have gone so backward from from that point, um, we're no longer seen as leaders and most progressive Australians are incredibly ashamed and embarrassed about their country's human rights record, the way that we treat refugees when they come to Australia, the way that we treat our Indigenous population. So I hope that this book can provide some kind of um, uh, affirmation and, and evidence that once Australia was, was bolder, more courageous uh, and more independent-minded than it currently is. I'm also thrilled to be here in London able to tell this story because it has similarly been forgotten from the British suffrage story. So, you know, it's not just that it's not represented at all in, say, the big blockbuster Hollywood movie Suffragette. You know, there was an outcry after that movie about the fact that women of colour weren't represented in the film. But, you know, certainly um, no one cared less that the uh, Australian women who were so significant in the movement weren't represented because people didn't know that in the first place anyway. I would love... I would love the British reading public and particularly the um, people who are interested in, in, in history and political history and women's history to understand this aspect of their history too. Once Australia beat England at its own game and not just in cricket, that these women were, were diplomats, they were stateswomen, they were rock stars, they were agitators, they were disruptors that this was a global movement. Britain was part of it, but they didn't lead it. Australia did. And I think that that's, I think that that's just a significant part of the story that has been overlooked. And, um, you know, to be frank, Britain didn't like Australia telling it how to do its politics 100 years ago. And I'm not so sure it's going to like uh, an upstart Australian woman telling it how to understand its own history. But Hopefully, uh, historically-minded people will find it not just interesting um, to fill in some of the gaps but also understand uh, the, the, the complexity of the story and give these women their due. That was Claire Wright. Her book, You Daughters of Freedom, is out now, published by Text Publishing. For plenty more on women's history and the suffragettes, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when George Morton Jack will be talking about Indian soldiers in the First World War. Mm-hmm.